I'm praying that the message will be an encouragement to you. Uh, it's a little challenging. It has been for me, but I think you'll enjoy it. I hope it's fun, and I hope more than anything that we uh, were inspired to grow in our relationship with God. Okay, let's turn to the book of Acts. We're continuing our study there, and uh, I'm teaching on the danger of looking good this morning, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And just before we read it, remember that the closing verses of chapter 4 uh, are the story of Barnabas. His name is Joseph, but we don't really know him by that name, but we know him by his nickname, uh, the son of encouragement, the son of exhortation and comfort. And he had brought a gift to the church and laid it at the apostles' feet. It was the proceeds from a sale of a piece of property that he had in order to meet the needs of the body of Christ. And then we pick up in verse uh, 1 of chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? <clears throat> Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young man came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Father, we thank you for your word. And this is a challenging text. But God, I know that you have some gems in here for us. And I pray, Father, that you would lead us and that you would guide us through this uh, teaching this morning. I pray that you would uh, fill me so that the words that I speak are your words and they're filled with power to affect all of our lives, mine included. And God, I know that you've really touched my heart through this passage, even in preparation. Father, we ask that uh, your will would be done. God, that you would move. Holy Spirit, that you would have a freedom in our hearts to take an honest look at ourselves and, uh, and an honest look at what you want to accomplish in us. And so have your way this morning, and we want to say thank you in advance for your purposes and your work that you're about to do. And we pray it in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. This uh, text is really about hypocrisy. In the Greek, it's hypocrites, where we get our, our English word hypocrite from. It actually, in its origin, had to do with someone that was in drama. It was an actor. Somebody that was an actor playing a part in, uh, in drama was called a hypocrite. It wasn't a, a, a derogatory term in its origin. It just meant someone that was putting on a face, a mask, was putting on a persona that wasn't their own, pretending to be somebody that they really weren't. But you can see how that would evolve into defining someone that was phony, that wasn't really who they claimed to be. And one of the things about uh, hypocrisy is it seems to be one of, the, one of the major reasons that people bring up who are unbelievers why they don't want to go to church. Haven't you run into people that that's like one of the first things out of their mouth. If they want to give a reason 
that they don't want to believe or a reason that they don't want to come to fellowship or to receive Christ, it's because of hypocrites in the church. And the truth is, is that there is some truth to that. There are hypocrites in the church. And I'll tell you why. Because one of the heart motivations of a believer is to become more like Christ. We aspire to be like Jesus, don't we? That's what Jesus says, what God says in in Romans chapter eight. God's purpose for us is to create in us the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. And so we aspire to that because that's what God designs us to experience and wants us to know. And so we aspire to it. That's not sin, aspiring to it. Every morning I get up, you do the same thing as you walk with the Lord and we aspire to be more than we are, don't we? We aspire to be what God has made us. I don't wanna be me. I wanna be what God wants me to be. And so I get up and I put on Christ and I, with God's strength, I wanna walk in him and I don't wanna behave in my, my, my way. I wanna behave in the way that God wants me to behave, speak the way he would speak, love the way he would love. I wanna live that kind of a life. The problem and when hypocrisy begins to kind of rear its ugly head is when I not only aspire to be like Christ, but I begin to give other people the impression that I am more like him than I really am. You see the difference? So aspiring is not a bad thing, but it's when I go beyond aspiring and begin to try to give people the impression that I'm farther along that path than I really am. And so it's a real trap, and it's part of the reason why I think the church is often accused of hypocrisy is because we aspire to so much more than we are. The danger is when we begin to communicate that in ways that give people the impression that we are more than we are. C.S. Lewis has written something interesting in his book called The Four Loves about this whole issue of hypocrisy. He says, anyone who has ever taught or attempted to lead others knows the tendency in all of us toward exaggerating our depth of character while treating leniently our flaws. The Bible calls this tendency hypocrisy. We consciously or subconsciously put forward a better image of ourselves than really exists. The outward appearance of our inward character and the inner reality do not match. And so that is hypocrisy. As I was going through this, I was, the, the Holy Spirit was reminding me of my hypocrisy because I've got hypocrisy in my life, things that don't match up. And, I, and I'm gonna give you three examples from my own life uh, to humble myself and humiliate myself in front of you, to free you up to be genuine about who you are too. And the first has to do with not giving the full information. When I was in upstate New York, we were, I'd been in a, an associate pastor in a Baptist church for about seven years. And um, long, the long story short is that we decided to plant a church. And, it, and the fact is, is that when I sometimes communicate about our experience in New York, oftentimes I'll just say, yeah, we were, you know, the final couple of three years that we were there, we were church planting until we came here. But I really haven't told you the whole story because it wasn't a successful church plant. Now that's a small detail to leave out but we couldn't, we couldn't get flies to follow. I mean, it was bad. It was like we were just crying out to God and crying out to God and crying out to God. Now, in all the process, God was preparing us because if it had gone, been successful, we would have never come here. We wouldn't have been open to it at all. We were hardly open to it even the way it was. But it was that preparation that God was doing that really prepared us to come here. But when I share it with people, oftentimes I'll leave the part out about it wasn't going very well, by the way. Are you following me? So that's kind of the hypocrisy of omission. I'm giving part of the information, but not the the, the full amount of information. And by doing so, I kind of leave the the sense that, oh, he was church planting up. That's neat. He left a church up there. Well, I have to tell you, I didn't leave a church up there. It crumbled when we left. Okay? So that's an example of omission. Let me give you another one that's a a little bit more intentional and, uh, and direct. 
I don't know why I do this. Um, but there are times when people will ask me things. Like, I, I, I like to go running. And, and people will ask me when I'm running in the neighborhood, it's like, oh, how far are you run? Oh, I don't know, five miles, ten, six miles, I don't know, something like that. And the reality is I know it's like four and a half or 4.75. Are you following me? It's such a silly, stupid thing. But I will exaggerate, and I'm thinking afterwards, why did I do that? And I, I've, I've tried in the past, and I'm getting better at it where I don't do that, but, but I've actually told myself, every time you do that, you have to go back and humble yourself, and you need to correct that. And so I have to go back to the neighbor and say, you know, I, I know it seems silly, but I told you five, it's actually three and a half, or 3.75, or it's five, or whatever. But I, I'm making myself humiliate myself to stop doing those things. But I don't know what it is that's within me, but I can tell you, I know what it is, really. It's a desire to somehow incrementally, as small as it might be, look just slightly better than I really am. Well, I've got a worse one. This is just blatant, bald-faced lie coming up. When I was in Samoa, I, I helped teach the Samoan kids in their, in their schools, uh, Tapa. It's called Siapo there. Um, it's a long story how a Haole boy goes to Samoa and teaches Samoans how to do their arts. But I went over there, taught them to make the, the cloth bark and uh, bark cloth and how to make the dyes and everything. But I am a horrible painter. I'm just like, I bear, stick figures. My kids, when they were like one and two years old, were better at drawing than I was. You know, it was just, they're very good at drawing and I'm terribly horrible. It's just awful. And, but I can make like geometric shapes. So I, you know, the people there that I was working with and teaching were making these incredible drawings and things. And I'm sitting there making circles with geometric shapes. You know, that's about as good as I can do. And one of the people that uh, was a housemate in, in one of the houses that I was working on and as we were down there working and doing ministry, I was helping with this Baptist church painting and just kind of doing missions work down there. And um, one, of the, one of the housekeepers uh, all of a sudden said, could I paint, you know? And nobody in the house normally would allow somebody like that to, to take the materials and paint. But I said, sure, you know. And so I gave her a, a, a canvas and a board with the, with the siapo on it, all ready to paint on. She, and she says, what would you, I'd like to paint something for you. Because I'd been teaching a Bible study there and everything. What could I do to, I'd like to do something for you. And there's a story that I don't have time to tell about the turtle and the shark. And uh, some of you, if you know anything about Samoan culture, might know it, but if not, it's okay. Anyway, it's a, it's a, it's a legend in Samoan culture. And so she painted this turtle and shark, and I'm telling you, freehand, it was unbelievable. And I've got it at my house today. It stands as a, as a, as a, uh, a gift to me from this family, but also as a testimony by, to my hypocrisy. Because when I came home, I had three paintings. Two were mine, and one was this wonderful turtle and shark. You know where this is going. <laughs> So Becky says to me, wow, did you paint these? And these kind of seem like, well, I did some of them, and so I might as well just blanketly say yes. And so I gave a blanket, you know, a response of yes, I did. And as it went out, I thought, why am I saying that? It doesn't, doesn't matter. I should just say, but then I thought, no, if I say, this was, uh, I forget how many years ago, this was like about uh, maybe 10 or 12 years ago. And, and, and as, I, as it came out of my mouth, I thought, but then I thought, no, I'm just going to leave it. It's, not, it's never going to come up again anyway. Well, for years after this, I never made it right. And Becky would have people over to the house and they'd go through, I'd go, I'm not, you know, I don't know what it is about women, but they want to say, do you want to see the house? You know, I, women are like that. Guys, it's like, why are you doing that, you know? But you go through the house and, and, oh, and see these paintings? These are Bob. Bob painted these from Samoa. Isn't that beautiful? This turtle and shark. Bob, you're so amazing. And every time she'd do it, I'd be like, no. <laughs> and finally, after about three years of this going on, I said, honey, I need to talk with you. <laughs> I said, I didn't paint the turtle and the shark. And she was just like, 
her face just fell. It was like, you know, she was, it was just terrible, you know? But those are the kinds of things that, we, that I do and I've done. Where I, and I'm thinking, why did I do that? Well, I know why. Because for some reason, I don't feel that I just stand alone the way I am, am sufficient. And for some reason, I feel I've got to say something just slightly more. And I don't know if you're like me. I know none of you do this. But if you ever did do something like this, why, why are we willing to give up so much for so little return? Do, does anybody care that the mileage was a mile less? Nobody cares. Does anybody, does, does anybody really care that that this was not painted by me? Does it change my value? This is the point, is that it is so easy for any one of us to fall into these things. And we can begin to actually develop habits of lifestyle where just so, in such modest little ways, incremental ways, we, we, we give an appearance that we're slightly more than we are. That's the problem that infiltrated the church. That affected the Pharisees. And after you do it long enough, it becomes so much a part of your character that you don't even care if anybody knows anymore. Exposure is really not an issue. It's just like you just keep lying and keep pretending and keep being a hypocrite, putting on the mask, playing the part, when in reality, uh, it's not genuine. And that's really what this text is about. And we find Ananias um, agreeing to sell a piece of property. Now, the question is, what motivated Ananias and Sapphira to sell? Well, I think probably a number of things. When we look at this story, I think it's very important to realize that Ananias are more like us than they are some sort of demon-possessed people that were just completely bad. They weren't. I believe that they were motivated in a very wonderful way. They saw the need in the church. They realized, wow, we've, God has provided for us more than we even need. I think the Holy Spirit prompted them to sell that piece of property for the purpose of blessing those in need. But somewhere along the way, the desire to be recognized and to be approved of and to be praised crept in. And let me tell you how I think it happened. I think it happened when Barnabas gave his property and brought it to the apostles' feet. Now, we know that Barnabas did it with integrity. We know that he did it with, uh, with uh, humility. We know that he did it with an objective to praise God because we see the rest of his character throughout the book of Acts. The problem was is that when Ananias and Sapphira saw the response, now I'm, I'm postulating here, but I believe that when they saw the response of the church, to Barnabas's gift, they coveted that same approval and that same praise. And they thought to themselves, I want people to think of me like they seem to be thinking of Barnabas. And so they made this decision uh, to take beyond what God had called them to do and then to take some of that approval and praise that was really designed for God and make it their own. It's the exact same problem that the Pharisees had on a regular basis, so much so that Jesus constantly was confronting them. Matthew 23, the whole chapter, Jesus is saying seven times, you Pharisees, woe to you, you hypocrites. The, the, the most severe language in the entire Bible of Jesus Christ in the New Testament was reserved for hypocrisy and with the Pharisees. And Jesus went on to say that the reason for this hypocrisy was simply in John 12, 43, because they loved the praise from men more than the praise from God. They were more concerned about looking good than being good. They were more concerned about appearances than their character. And they were more concerned with the applause of men than the approval and well done of God. So they agreed to keep some of the money back. In fact, they, uh, just so that uh, there's no uh, confusion here about keeping it back, what it means in the Greek, it means to secretly hold back or to embezzle. 
So they knew they were skimming off the top of what they had already devoted to God and made clear was all for God. They were going to take some of that money. So Ananias initiated this plan, but we also are told that uh, it was with Sapphira's full knowledge. So she was complicit by consent. The, the word in the Greek again, sunedo means to be privy to, to be fully informed or aware of. So she wasn't in the dark about this. Now, one of the things that has, um, has been suggested is that maybe Sapphira just was submitting to her husband's leadership, that she wasn't in agreement with it, but that she basically was kind of just going along and because of the culture and the times and even the biblical mandate for a wife to submit to her husband, that she just basically capitulated and said, well, he's the guy, he's the husband, he's the leader, it's on his head. But that's not what the text indicates. The text and the language and the, the words that are used here in the Greek indicate that she did it with her full knowledge and full consent. But I do want to touch on this briefly about this issue of submission because a wife's submission to her husband and the authority that, that a husband has in relationship to the leadership in the home ends when sin begins. And so a wife is not obligated to follow her husband into sin and into wickedness. And we have a, a text of that in, in Deuteronomy 13. It's very severe. It ha happens, to do with, uh, happens to deal with idolatry. And it says, if your own brother, your very own son or daughter, or the wife you love, or your closest friend secretly entices you, saying, let us go and worship other gods, again, idolatry, do not yield to him or listen to him. Show him no pity. Do not spare him or shield him. And this is the kicker. Surely you must put him to death. Now, I'm sure there are probably a few wives that have tried to do that before for various reasons, but, uh, but the idea is that even in Deuteronomy, in the opening chapters of the Bible, God is saying, don't be complicit with someone else's sin. And I have to tell you that, and I, I'm going to kind of address these comments to the, to the men in particular because I'm a guy and I'm relating uh, at that level to this text. But the thing that, that I have to share with you is that my wife has got a much purer ethic than I do. I mean, she's just, you know, I, I don't want to say that she's as pure as the wind-driven snow, but, but there's a part of me that really feels that because she'll say to me when I'm discussing different things or talking about different things, I'll say, you know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about doing this. And she'll say, well, is that right? And I'm like, oh, you know, <laughs> there you go with that stuff again, you know. Um, but there's a part of me that on different occasions where I've had a plan or a business thing that I wanted to do and an investment I wanted to make, and I'm like, okay, let's do this. And, and she says, is that a wise decision? Should you be working with that person or in that situation? Or is that really the right time or whatever? Or should you really be, you know, dividing your interests like that from ministry and this and that and the other thing? And I'm like, and I'm, I'll sit there and try to convince her. And I'll try, to, I'll try to debate with her about it, you know. But in the end, she's right. And, and I've learned that um, I'm much wiser to listen to the, to the sensitivity of my wife's discernment and wisdom than to simply bulldoze over the top of that, of that red flag. And I, 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 all I can tell you, I've been married for almost 20 years, and what I can tell you, and actually it's about 19 and three quarters, I just want to make that clear. <laughs> it's almost 20 years. I got to get through the message without doing it, you know? Okay, so... <laughs> But I've learned that my wife so often has been right. And, and I want to encourage the men that sometimes when, when your wife speaks to you about, is this right or is this godly or is this really appropriate or should you be doing that or should we be talking that way or whatever it is, is that that, that voice is given by God to guard our hearts. And really a husband and wife should be in harmony and unity 
in godliness, not in ungodliness. And so it's really a, a, the wrong thing for a husband or a wife to try to, to entice their spouse into something that's not godly. And it's the obligation of the one who is being enticed by the person who's already hook, line, and sinker moving forward to say, this is not right. And then it's the obligation of the person that's being corrected to say, you're right. I'm wrong. Would you pray for me? I want to humble myself. I don't want to think that way. I don't want to go that direction. And so I, all I can tell the, the men here in particular is that, and it's not that the wives can't benefit the other direction, but, but I know especially for the men, we, it, there's, a, there's a pattern in our lives of wanting to accomplish and achieve and conquer. And sometimes in doing that, we will kind of uh, skirt the edges of what's correct and what's moral and what's biblical and what's right to get the job done. And because often a wife doesn't care about, you know, conquering, is that she's more open to, is that right in your objective of conquering to do these things? And so I want to encourage the men to, to, uh, to take advantage of the gift that your spouse is in your relationship in helping you keep uh, right and correct and on the right path with God. But unfortunately, when Ananias came with Sapphira, she evidently agreed. And then they brought this money to the apostles' feet and not only brought this amount, but they gave the impression to uh, the apostles, and to those that were in the meeting, and there probably was a meeting, it was probably like at the end of the service, and then God put it on their heart, and because their desire was to receive praise and approval, they weren't going to do this quietly, and so they did it in a setting where others would see, and so they brought it to the apostles' feet. The problem was not what they brought. The problem was that they brought less than what they said that they were bringing. It was that incremental you know, uh, uh, deception and hypocrisy was, that was the problem. And actually, it's kind of interesting because in, in Matthew 6, 1, uh, Jesus is addressing the, uh, the Pharisees in the Sermon on the Mount, and he said uh, to, the, to, the, to, the, uh, to the disciples talking about the Pharisees, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And he goes on to talk about the importance of doing your good deeds secretly. But it's a little confusing because in Matthew chapter 5, at the beginning of that very same Sermon on the Mount, these are the words of Jesus in verse 16. Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So in one text it says, hey, let it rip. Let people see what you're doing. Let the good deeds be visible and evident. And then in another text, just another chapter later, he says, don't let people see what you're doing. Well, we know the Bible doesn't have any contradictions in it. So what's the, what's the issue? Well, the issue has to do with motive. When Jesus was teaching about not letting your good deeds go out, he was contrasting it with the Pharisees who were banging the drum and clanging the cymbals and making sure it was very visible. The motivation was self-aggrandizement. It was to elevate themselves beyond what they really were to benefit themselves. It had nothing to do with the glory of God. In the, in the other text... Jesus says, to let your light shine that your good deeds may be seen by all that Jesus Christ, God the Father, might be praised. You see the difference? In one, he says, don't do it to receive praise for yourself. Keep it secret. But if your objective is the glory of God, then go for it and let it be seen as long as the objective and the motive is the glory of God. Now, I can tell you in my three examples of my deception and my hypocrisy, it never came across my radar screen, the glory of God, when I made those decisions to deceive. Not one, not one time, it didn't, even cross my, it didn't even cross my mind to think, 
I want to glorify God by exaggerating a little bit. I'm going to give a bold-faced lie, and that'll bring honor to God's name. That never crossed my mind. I was thinking of myself only. And so that's the, that's the, the resolution to that dilemma, is that, yes, nothing's wrong. In fact, our good deeds are to bring glory to God, but not to us. We have to be so careful. And that's one of my favorite verses in the Bible in Psalm 115.1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us. I think he says it twice because it's like trying to convince himself. Okay, please, not to me, not to me. But to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Well, Peter confronted this sin. And uh, this must have come as an absolute shock to Ananias and Sapphira. Because this process of selling property takes a little bit of time. It's not an overnight experience. Uh, they had to have a buyer. They had to put it on the market. There needed to be a, a public disclosure of that sale. It needed to be recorded. Uh, all these things take time. So in the meantime, they're thinking to themselves as they're meeting in the fellowship on a daily basis, they're thinking, I can hardly wait. <laughs> when we put that money at the apostles' feet. I mean, I, it's for the Lord, but won't it feel wonderful to have the church think highly of us about this? And I'm sure he played the tape in his mind, and maybe the tape was an exaggeration too, and people were standing ovation and people hooting and hollering and whistling, which probably wouldn't have happened, but in their mind, they might have kind of overplayed it. Whatever he was doing in his heart, the reality was is that he stood before Peter publicly, presented this offering, and then got rebuked. Wow, that's a heavy thing. The question is, how did Peter know? Well, there are a couple of possibilities. It might have been common knowledge. You know, it's a small town. We live in a small place. Uh, word travels fast. It could have been just public record because they went through many of the same processes we do here when you, when you exchange or, or transfer property. But I think that more than likely, it was simply supernatural revelation from God using the gift of the word of knowledge that's recorded for us in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 8. So in that text, it tells us about this word of knowledge, word of knowledge that allows someone to, to speak to things that they really have no knowledge of, and yet they know. A good example of that was when Jesus was, uh, was speaking with the woman at the well, and you remember the story? You know, he says, uh, you know, uh, are you married? And she, she says, well, no. And he says, yeah, you're not, but you've been, right now you're living with a guy and you've had five husbands before that. And she's just completely blown away and it leads to the salvation of the entire village. Just that one word of knowledge. The word of knowledge is a very powerful thing. It can lead to life and it can also lead, as in this case, to death. And so she, or Ananias and Sapphira are confronted by, by, um, by Peter and, and Peter says, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? The word is ploreo. It's the very same word to fill or to furnish that Dr. Luke uses to describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church. So the church is to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God, but somehow this couple was filled by Satan with a plan that undermined the very work of God. And he confronts it head on and he convicts them of it. Now, the, the thing is, I want to just kind of make a comment on this is behind the scenes, behind the scene, behind the scene is Satan working. He's always working. He was working in every part of the Old Testament. He's working in every part of the New Testament and he's working behind the scenes today for the purpose of destroying and undermining and killing the work of God. That's his objective. Now, Satan has got a thousand and one bags in his trick, in his bag of tricks. He's, did I say bags in his tricks? He's got tricks in his bag. He's got, he's got 
almost an unlimited number of, of avenues by which to tempt and to destroy the church. Which one of all of the options that he has does he pick in the infancy of the church? Hypocrisy. Interesting, isn't it? That he chose that methodology. Satan had already ruined the leadership, the religious leaders of Israel through hypocrisy. That was the main complaint that Jesus had against the Pharisees and the religious leaders was hypocrisy, pretending to be something that they really weren't and hadn't achieved. And so Satan comes in in the infancy of the church with the objective of annihilating the church. And he uses the temptation of hypocrisy. Peter went on to say that you've lied to the Holy Spirit Interesting to note that he didn't accuse Ananias and Sapphira of lying to him or lying to the church, but he immediately jumps to the issue of deception to the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Well, because the Bible says that we're created in the image of God. And being created in the image of God, whatever we do to someone else, we're doing it unto God. We're told that in the book of Matthew, that whatever you do to the least of these, you've done it unto me, the words of Jesus. So whenever we do something good for someone, to the least of these, we've done it unto Christ. Whenever we deceive, we've done it unto Christ. Whenever we speak harshly, we've done it unto Christ. Whenever we have uh, harmed someone in some way, we've done it unto Christ. Whenever we have spoke rashly or been inconsiderate or unloving or violent or anything like that, whatever it is, We've done it unto Christ. And that's such an important lesson for us that, that we don't see people as simply just bodies that are disconnected from our relationship with God. But whatever we're doing in our relationships with other people, the Bible says that we've done it unto Christ. That's part of the reason why the Bible says it's so important that we're reconciled to each other. Do you understand why? Because if we're not reconciling with others that we have offenses with, then we're not reconciled with Christ either. We may pretend that we are and everything's fine, but until we're reconciled with those that we violated or that we have a broken relationship with, nothing can be completely right in our life. And so that's why it's so important to realize that, that Peter goes right to the heart of the matter. It's not about people, but it's about our relationship with God. Yes, it affects people, it involves people, but ultimately, because of the image-bearing nature that each human being carries with them, we've done it unto, in this case, the Holy Spirit. And he says, how did we do it? Well, he, he told them by keeping some of this money back. And so Peter questioned them regarding this sin. And he said, look, why did you do this thing? Didn't the money belong to you? In other words, nobody was mandating that they sell it. They didn't have to sell it. There was no rule. It wasn't like it was a, they had to pull numbers and take straws. Okay, it's your turn. Cough up that property. No, it was theirs. Peter's saying, you didn't have to sell it. And then he said, after you sold it, wasn't the money at your disposal? In other words, didn't you have authority and jurisdiction and power over what was going to be done with those funds? What were their choices? Ananias and Sapphira could have sold it all and kept all of it. And it would have been fine. Nothing wrong with that. They could have sold it and said to the church, we want to give half of the proceeds of this property to the church. And they have every right to do that. Or they could have said, we want to give the entire amount to the church. The problem was is that they committed before the church and communicated to the church and allowed the church to believe that they were giving the entire amount when that wasn't true. The sad part is is that we don't know the the figures or the percentages, but it might have been that they only held 10% back. My guess is that they didn't hold the entire amount back because it would look obvious that, you know, here's, you know, 50 bucks for my, you know, $500,000 piece of property. 
But if they came in and said, here's 450, well, that might be believable. So the likelihood is they only held back a small percentage. And isn't that the way hypocrisy often is? Like me, selling myself for so little, such teeny tiny incremental gain that nobody even cares. And yet I've given up something precious in terms of integrity over something so small. Well, Peter identified, uh, you know, the issue. He said, what made you think of doing such a thing? Well, we already kind of have identified that. It was probably partly profit. They wanted some of the money. Probably praise. They wanted the applause of the people. And possibly pride. They wanted the status of being perceived more spiritual than they actually were. So Peter identified the root of their sin again. And he says, you've not lied to men, but to God, which goes back to my same comments about the Holy Spirit. When we lie to people, when we deceive people, when we sin against people, those sins ultimately are sins against God. Kent Hughes says, um, is, a, is a writer today and a kind of a theologian and a, a pastor, speaker. He says this about this particular story of Ananias and Sapphira. We must be absolutely clear as to what Ananias's sin was. It was not casual deception. Rather, he feigned a deeper spiritual commitment than he had. We share Ananias's sin not when others think we are more spiritual than we are, but when we try to make others think we are more spiritual than we are. Examples of Ananias's sin today would include creating the impression that we are people of prayer when we are not, making it look like we have it all together when we do not, promoting the idea that we are generous when we are so tight we squeak when we smile. I like that one. Misrepresenting our spiritual effectiveness. For example, saying when I was in a crusade in New York, I ran the whole follow-up program when the truth is you were simply a substitute counselor. When a preacher urges his people toward a deeper devotion to God, implying that his life is an example when, it, when he actually knows it is not, he is repeating Ananias' sin. When an evangelist calls people to holy living but is secretly having a, an affair with his secretary, he is an Ananias. You know, the thing is, is that as I teach this, as I studied it, I realize we all share guilt in this process. We've all done this, haven't we? To try to make ourselves some, in some way incrementally better. And, I, and I, I don't have this in my notes, but I want to talk about this just for a minute, is that I want to encourage you. You're fine like you are. We're called to love each other like we are. Do you know that these little lies that we tell, these little deceptions that we give, create a barrier between us and, and honest, open, transparent, loving, wonderful fellowship? Why? Because those little teeny tiny barriers that are so incremental and so small that nobody really cares, but in our minds, we've created a persona that doesn't really exist. We feel like if people really knew what we were, they wouldn't love us. And so we can never expose ourselves. We can never be honest. We can never be transparent. And so we come to church and we come to fellowship and we, 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 are, we are, are longing to get past that barrier, but it's a barrier that's erected by our own doing, by creating these small deceptions and they're incremental. And sometimes they're so, they're almost like we, you know, don't even realize we're doing it sometimes. And I want to encourage you that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Christ has designed us to be free. One of the most wonderful things is when the body of Christ can come together and be honest about their foibles and to be truthful about where they are. Where they, where they are. We had a, a men's meeting a, a few weeks ago and uh, the time of prayer at the end, guys were given an opportunity to share prayer requests and we always pray at the end and wonderful times with the guys. And uh, one of the guys uh, raised his hand and said, I had something to share. 
And he said, I, I have a real problem with alcohol. I'm an alcoholic. I can't stop. And I don't want to live this way. It's just dominating my life. I need help and I need prayer. It was a wonderful thing to pray for this brother. That simple honesty and transparency opened up the next guy who said, I'm addicted to, to smoking. I've been smoking. I can't stop. It's, my wife doesn't like it. It's causing problems at home. I'm sneaking around. I feel like, you know, I'm not honest with people. And he wanted prayer. And then another man, after hearing that honesty, said, I'm having problems in my marriage. And you see what kind of happens, how it kind of snowballs, and all of a sudden we're doing real ministry. I want to encourage you is that that little sin, that, that, that little hypocrisy, we sacrifice all of that, all of that intimacy, all of that genuine fellowship. For what? For things that people, it's like, you lied about that? That's, that doesn't make any difference about how I feel about you. I know some of you, it's like my, the things I've shared this morning. Most of you are thinking, that's not that bad. And then others of you are thinking, we're finding a new church. That's it. <laughs> Can't trust anything the guy says. But you see what we're doing is that when we lie like that, we create a barrier. When we do that, we're actually being filled, not in a spiritual sense, like being filled with the, with the spirit of God because we can't have Satan enter into a temple that's being occupied by God. But we can be influenced by him and his objective is to dismantle and to take away and to rip away from you the most wonderful part of what true Christian fellowship is and that's the ability to come honestly and saying, I'm having trouble. I need help. I'm lonely. I'm depressed. I feel like killing myself. I don't know how to pull out of this tailspin. I feel like leaving my wife. I'm so angry with my husband, I'd like to play, uh, put that scripture in Deuteronomy into practice about killing, you know? I mean, there, there are things that are all just a part of the normal, uh, you know, aspects of, the, of, of living in this fallen world that if we hide and we don't share with someone, I'm not saying, you know, uh, bring it up right here in the service, but, but finding avenues, appropriate avenues within the body of Christ of loving each other enough to be honest and to get the help that we need. And it's amazing when a person does that, how it opens others up as well. So verse six tells us that, that God brought judgment on Ananias uh, as a result. And it says in a very powerful statement, when Ananias heard Peter's words, he fell down and died. That's just amazing to me. We don't know exactly what killed him, heart attack, uh, aneurysm, um, we're not sure what it is, but the point is, is that God took him out on the spot. We, we actually uh, find that in Scripture, in the Old Testament, that happens uh, somewhat often. We find uh, Achan and his sin and his rebellion. We see Korah's rebellion where the earth swallowed up, opened up and swallowed him and all the, all the grumblers and complainers in, in, in Israel during, in the book of Joshua, just their households, everything that belonged to them was gone. You know, we see um, Eli's sons just struck down we see kings that were eaten with worms on the spot. We, we see a number of these times where God's judgment seems to be so pronounced and so direct. And it tells us that after Ananias fell down dead, young men came forward and wrapped his body and carried him out. Now, I've got three questions uh, about this that maybe you've thought of and might be helpful for you uh, to consider. Number one is, why did God do this? Number two, isn't this rather harsh in light of a relatively minor sin? And number three, why don't we see God judging in the church the same way today? Let me tackle the first one. Why did God do it? And I'm gonna just give you five quick points. Number one, to emphasize the holiness of his character. Number two, to produce a wholesome fear 
of the Lord. And I like wholesome because uh, the fear of the Lord is phobos, where we get our word phobia from, uh, from the Greek language. But a a biblical definition of the fear of the Lord is not, you know, cringing and, and, you know, cowering under the power of God, but it means like a father, having a wholesome dread of displeasing the father. Wholesome because when my father gives me commands, my earthly father, when I was a young boy, they were for my protection. And, and I knew that if I violated those commands, I would also receive, you know, lickings, you know? And I didn't want those. And so the way to avoid that was to honor my father. I was doing it out of a wholesome dread of the punishment, but it led to life for me by doing what was right. And so in that same sense, he wanted, God wanted to produce a wholesome fear of himself. Thirdly, to eliminate the corrupting influence of, of the church in its infancy. Fourthly, to preserve the purity and testimony of his people in a world where today to this very day, the major objection of unbelievers is the hypocrisy of the church. And then finally, to warn others against similar wickedness. And we find that often happening uh, after God does bring severe and sometimes instantaneous punishment against those who have done wickedness is that right after that, it'll say in a fear spread among the people, you know, of doing anything dishonoring to God in that same way or in that same manner. Here's the second question. Isn't this a rather harsh response in light of a relatively minor sin? I mean, this reminds me of Adam and Eve, really. Ananias and Sapphira are the Adam and Eve of the New Testament. Their sin, it's like, for goodness sakes, they brought all this money. Who cares if they held back 10% or 20% or even if it was 50%? Why make a big deal about that? At least they did something. They did more than other people that were there. So why were they punished? I think the same thing about Adam and Eve. Why was it that for eating a piece of fruit, now it was in disobedience to God, and I don't have time to go into all of it, but it seems, doesn't it seem like relatively minor sin? So here's my issue. Ananias, like Adam and Eve, received exactly what he deserved. And that's what sometimes slips our attention and our thinking, is that we think, how could God punish them so severely for such a small sin? But the Bible says only one sin brings death. The, the real dilemma and the real quandary and the real wonder is that why God in our time, in our age, and in the history of the church doesn't do the same thing to us for similar sins. So it's an expression of God's grace that he doesn't treat us that way. He's absolutely just in bringing punishment as he did on Ananias and Sapphira, even for a sin that we might consider relatively minor. The third question is, why doesn't he judge the church the same way today? And all I can say is, thank God he doesn't. Because at the end of every one of our services, instead of having a time of prayer, we'd have a time of burial. And, and we would be burying others and others would be burying us. And you probably wouldn't have a pastor. You'd be on a pastoral search. Of course, it'd be hard to find because, you know, a lot of pastors would be dying. So thank God that he doesn't treat us in the same manner because we are all guilty and have all committed similar types of sins against God. But let me ask, answer this question a little bit more specifically and technically. The fact is, is in the early church, they had no provision and no real clear governing authority and no clear directives on how to deal with sin in the church. It just didn't exist. They were having to draw from the Old Testament. It's only after the church was going through this process that that Paul began to write the various churches on how to deal with sin and how to deal with hypocrisy and how to deal with adultery and how to deal with a leader who falls and how to deal with these various things, that they had a, a, a directive and a clear approach and a clear path on how to govern the church. 
But before that time, it just didn't exist. The church was in its infancy. And so God himself steps in and he brings discipline to the church. But since that time, and I'm, I'm again, I'm, this is my, these are my thoughts. This, these aren't from the Bible, but these are my thoughts. I believe that God, through the apostles and through the teaching of the disciples and through the development of the church, passed the authority and the baton on because the disciples being inspired by the Spirit were given directives and words on how to deal with sin in the church. And so I believe that it's up to the church to be self-governing. doesn't mean that you're going around looking for sin or anything, but when it is in your face and it's obvious and the Lord addresses it and the Lord reveals it for some reason for his purposes, that the church doesn't back away and say, I don't want to get involved with that. Let God judge that. No, God has given the church the responsibility and the authority to come in, not to harm the church, but to benefit the church. Even the person that might be struggling in some area of sin that is not repentant, that that we're coming to rescue, to, to benefit, not to harm. And so that's my, my suggestion to you as to why I think that we don't see that kind of, of, of immediate judgment on the church. And thank God for the grace of God. Aren't you grateful today that the Lord doesn't judge us in the same way? Well, the result in, in, uh, of this judgment was that great fear came on all who heard about it. And, uh, and then Sapphira comes wandering in three hours later. I don't know where she was, but she wasn't there during this entire presentation. Maybe she was feeling convicted. I don't know. Maybe, something, maybe she was busy. Maybe something happened. I don't know why she wasn't there for this wonderful presentation that Ananias made to the church, but she wasn't there. Three hours later, she comes in and Peter says to her, you know, is this the price you got for the house? And she says, well, yes, it is. And of course, Peter knows right away that now that she's complicit in this entire process, and he says to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? This word agree is symphonia, which is where we get our word symphony from or harmony or melody, something coming together in a beautiful work of God, coming together and in such a way that there's complete unity. Do you know that the same word is used of the early Testament church, just chapters earlier, about the the New Testament church, that they were one, that they were in unity, that they were in symphonia, and homo thumadon, homo thumadon, this oneness of spirit. It was to be based on the unity that comes from the singular person of Jesus. Everyone independently, not trying to tune to each other, but tuning to Christ. And when you tune to Christ, you're automatically in tune with each other. But here, Ananias and Sapphira were not tuning their hearts to the kingdom of God, but they were tuning themselves to the work of the enemy and to one another, being influenced by one another. And so Peter tells her, how could you agree to test the Lord? The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they are going to carry you out also. And on the spot, she drops dead. As I thought about this, I thought, how tragic. It tells us a couple things. One is it tells us that that the gospel that was meant to be delivered by beautiful feet. These men commissioned by God, by Jesus Christ, to be ambassadors of the gospel, to carry that gospel to the uttermost parts of the world, are now using those same feet to carry out the corpses of Ananias and Sapphira. What a tragedy. The other thing it makes me think is that here God is pronouncing in a very tangible, visible, historic way the cost of hypocrisy. It kills us. 
It absolutely kills us. It ruins us. It divides us from people. It separates us. It creates barriers. It harms us. It damages the work of God. It brings death, spiritual death, because we know we're wrong. And incrementally, as we continue, if we continue in that lifestyle, it continues to harden our heart further and further and further to the point that we can't even hear the Lord that well anymore. We have to ask other people, like my wife, you know, should we do this? Is this a good idea? I'm exaggerating a bit, and I have to correct myself right there again because I don't want to get smoked after this service. But my point is, is that we're learning from this text that these things actually damage us. We think they advance us. That's a lie from the enemy. They actually take us backwards. They actually harm us. They harm the work of God. And ultimately, we're not sinning against men and women. We're sinning against God himself. The outcome of all these things is that a great fear sees the whole church. Again, the church, the first time it's mentioned in the book of Acts, ecclesia, it means called out ones, those that are to be separate and different from the world. And in this aspect, related to how we present ourselves to others, we are to be absolutely honest and absolutely humble and absolutely content with who we are and what God has made us. We need to be content with our background, with where we were raised, with the education we had, with the achievements that we've accomplished, with everything. We need to be completely content. And ultimately, do you see that when we communicate something more than we really are, we're really ultimately saying, God, you haven't done a good enough job. I need to polish up what you've done. I need to improve upon it. It wasn't good enough. And so... The Bible says in the, in the text that a great fear seized the church and it also seized all who heard about these things. In other words, the unbelieving community. Here's something interesting is that you think when people see something like that or hear something like that, that would scare them away. Wouldn't you agree? People dropping dead in that church and the guy gave money and it just wasn't enough. He lied. He just kind of fudged a bit. I can't, I, I, if I go in there, I'm gonna, I won't even make it through the doors and I'll be laid flat. Wouldn't you think that? Wouldn't you think that that would be the response? The opposite happens. We're gonna find that over and over in the text of Acts. It says a great fear fell on the church and the people around them and the church continued to grow. God added to their number daily those that were being saved. Here's my point. The unbelievers are hoping that they will find integrity in the church. They want to see the real deal. The worst thing that we can do as Christians is go around and present this flowery, you know, uh, heaven on earth kind of experience as believers. I can't tell you how uh, it, it mystifies me why people like hearing me get up and humiliate myself in front of the church or when unbelievers, I, I, I'm honest with them about struggles and stuff and they're like, wow, you struggle? I, I thought, you know, like, you know, you've got the God thing going and everything. I said, well, it doesn't mean I don't struggle. One of the gals last night, uh, well, it was Cynthia. She was in the back, and, and as I was sharing my stories, you know, she said, keep coming, keep coming. We want the dirt. We want the dirt, you know? And there's a part of us that when we, when we know, uh, so I humored her after with a few more stories, um, but there's a part of us that we want to know that we're human and that we face the same condition. And when unbelievers believe that we think that we've got it more together than we do, they're not attracted to that because they, they, they know that that's not genuine. But when they see someone living in genuineness and humility and yet relying and, and clinging to God 
and, and seeing change in our life that's genuine, that's spirit-driven and spirit-empowered and spirit-given, they're hungry for that because they're spending their whole life, their whole life is about trying to be better than they are in the eyes of others. And to be free from that, I'm telling you, is freedom indeed. I want to encourage you to be free. How can you do it? Well, let me just close with three, three suggestions. Number one is that we have to be willing to acknowledge that we've been a part of the same sin of attempting to make others believe that we are incrementally better than we really are. That's just an admission. That's a confession. That's an agreement with God that we, we haven't been content. Secondly, we need to repent of that sin, meaning I don't want to do that anymore. And if you have to tell yourself like I have, anytime I do that, I'm going to go back and correct myself until I stop doing that. Whatever it is, then that's repentance. And then the Bible, I, I think, also would be uh, encouraging us to give our, our hearts to God in such a way that we cry out to him and say, God, make me an honest, transparent, open, real person in the church and in my family and in the community. And then the last thing is to ask God for strength and wisdom to participate in the good works that he has prepared for us in advance to do according to uh, Ephesians 2.10 and that we walk in them not with an objective of elevating ourselves but with the heart to bring glory and honor to God. I can't tell you clearly enough you are wonderful the way you are and God accepts you the way you are. And God is content at this point in your life with who you are. He's going to change you. He's, he wants to form in you a greater likeness of his son. But right at this moment, you are accepted in the beloved for what you look like, for what your past was, for what you're doing now and accomplishing now, and what your future is. God is pleased with you because of the fullness of the work of Christ in you. You are sufficient. You are full. You are enough. And with that knowledge, you can be real and you can be honest and you can be free. Father, we thank you for our time this morning and God, we thank you for this text that's quite shocking and yet filled with truths that can set us free. They're set in such stark contrast to the New Testament church. They're filled with the enemy. You want us to be filled with the spirit. They experience death. You want us to experience life. They tried to achieve the praise and approval of men and you are calling us to seek your approval and your approval alone. God, we want to be what you want us to be. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for um, the silliness, the, the futility, the pointlessness of this incremental effort to make ourselves appear slightly better than we are when you are already pleased. God, forgive us for, in essence, saying that you haven't been enough and you haven't done enough and you haven't made us enough. Father, I pray that you would teach us the joy and the freedom and the deliverance of being exactly who we are and yet not staying there, but allowing you to bring that wonderful transformation of your purpose, which is to form Christ in us, the hope of glory. Have your way, accomplish your purpose, and God, may you make this church a church of peace, a church of joy, a church of safety, a church where we can reveal ourselves 
and receive help and support and encouragement and a knowledge that we are all running a very similar race, different lanes, different experiences, and yet we are running with the same challenges. Even Jesus, speaking in Hebrews, said that he himself, having been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he accomplished it without sin. And Father, you are the great forerunner. Jesus Christ is our forerunner, and he has made the way possible for us by your power and by your spirit to live lives of absolute integrity. And we want to live that way, Lord. We want to be free. Make us free. In Jesus' name, amen.